Well, good morning again. Turn with me once more in your copy of the Scripture to 1 Thessalonians as we continue through this series called Walk Worthy. Paul's letter to a, letters to a fledgling church. Our text this morning will be verses 4 through 10, but just to give it the context it deserves, let's back up to verse 2 and read together. Paul writes, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you and for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath that is to come. The word of the Lord there. One main point here that's really too long and I apologize but it is what it is having received the gospel with conviction despite hardship the faith of the Thessalonians became a wide-reaching example to other believers okay having received the gospel with conviction despite hardship the faith of the Thessalonians became a wide-reaching example to other believers. You recall from two weeks ago, he's writing back to, again, this fledgling church in Thessalonica, the metropolis of Macedonia. He gives thanks to God for them, specifically mentioning them in his prayers. And then he gives three reasons for immediate thanks in verse 3. Their work of faith, their labor of love, and steadfastness. But then in verse 4, you might say that we get a further peek at the thankfulness, or perhaps what explains those elements in the life of the Thessalonians for which Paul and Silas and Timothy are so thankful. Okay, so Paul is going to say what his, he and his partners know. Then he's going to say something about what they know, the Thessalonians know, and then he's going to say something about what everyone knows. It's one way to think through this passage. Paul's going to say first what he knows, then he's going to say something about what they know, then something about what everybody knows. Knows. And so what is it that Paul knows? For we know, verse 4, brothers, loved by God that He has chosen you. What does he know? He knows that the Thessalonians are loved by God. And on that foundation that He has chosen them. What? He has what? He has chosen them as candidly, but almost about as casually, too, as you can. Paul articulates 
mentions the doctrine of the electing love of God. He, he mentions this amazing, act, this amazing action of God, and then he just kind of moves on. <laughs> he just kind of moves on. But I want to clarify it and tease it out. Perhaps some of you are wondering, well, what is this business of God? God chose them. That seems, that seems peculiar. We are you know, Reformed Baptist Church of Nashville in large part because of verses like these, although to be Reformed means historically much more than simply having an understanding God to be sovereign in salvation. Um, but when people ask me what the name of our church is, when I tell them I'm a pastor, I inevitably say, RBC Nashville, and they'll, they'll say, well, what does RBC stand for? And I'll say it stands for Reformed Baptist Church of Nashville. And they'll ask me, well, what is it? What does Reformed mean? What does Reformed mean? And, and by the way, most people nowadays, again, don't, aren't asking about what Reformed means in the historical sense of the word. They're basically asking about uh, what does it mean to hold to the doctrines of grace, to believe that God is sovereign in salvation, detached from some of the other context of capital R Reformed theology, which in the, um, which in the Reformation in particular uh, took a larger shape, again, than just the sovereignty of God and salvation. And I usually almost respond, always respond with something like this as my shoot-from-the-hip answer on an elevator with 10 or 15 seconds to explain the doctrine of election. I say, people like me believe that the initiating love and grace of God uh, is the same in the New Testament as it was in the Old Testament. Because no one seeks God by themselves. That's what I believe. That's how I answer. Abraham, a man who lived in Ur, a moon worshiper. Genesis chapter 12, God plucks out of the nations. And says, you're mine. You are mine. And I'm going to make my name great through you. Abraham didn't find God going to church. Going to synagogue, showing up. At Abraham was a moon worshiper and God plucks him out of the nations and says, I'm going to make you great and I'm going to make you great because I'm great. And I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations. That's what he says. He specifically chooses him, and we end up with a nation that God calls out of Egypt, and he sets apart for himself and for his namesake. And despite the people's attempt over and over again to wreck the good things that God had promised them and who they, he had declared them to be, despite that, because God took the first move, and he did it for the sake of his name and ultimately for the sake of good, his glory, it is a mission that is guaranteed to be successful. It's a mission that is guaranteed to be successful because the primary person at stake here is God. We certainly are incredible benefactors of that, but make no mistake about it. Salvation ultimately is for the glory of God. And His mission will be successful. So it is in His grace that He holds the people of Israel fast. He keeps His promises to call people out of darkness into His marvelous light. And so, when the curtain opens on the New Testament, everyone understands that Israel is God's chosen people descended from Father Abraham, who had many sons, and are hopefully praising the Lord. To believe in election is to say that because no one would ever choose God in their sinfulness, God, as He always has throughout the Bible, continues 
to call people out of darkness. In other words, the initiating grace of God in the New Testament is the same as it was in the Old Testament in the sense that, in the sense that, He is still calling, He is still choosing people and calling them out of darkness for the sake of His name and preserving them for the sake of His glory. That's what I believe. And by the way, that goes over a lot better. Of course, I, I don't say everything I just said. I'm preaching. I, I, but to say it really quickly, it goes over very well because you're tying it back to redemptive history. You're tying it down to the Bible. You're making an argument from consistency instead of staring at someone and saying, God chooses people and everyone. What did you just say? How does that even make sense? It situates it biblically, I think. God calls people out of darkness in His sovereignty based on His love. And yet to be very clear... His choice of us does not override our ability to make real choices, real choices that have real consequences and for which we are truly responsible. God is sovereign in total control, whether it's a believer or an unbeliever. Remember, the lot is cast into the lap, this seemingly random thing, kind of like a dice at a board game. It's cast, in, but it's every turn is from the Lord. Even things that seem random are from the Lord. The, 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 the heart of the king is in the Lord's hand, and he turns it whatever way he wills. God is sovereign. God is in control, but man is responsible. Man is accountable before God. Remember Peter's speech in Acts 2, 20, uh, 22 and 23. These two things come together remarkably. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed. By the hands of lawless men. God planned it. Revelation 13.8 is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. It wasn't a contingency plan. This was something that was planned, planned. And yet, you all, Peter says, are responsible. That's why it says they were so cut to the heart, if you recall. God is sovereign. God has orchestrated this plan. People are responsible. It was inevitable and given what God had, how God had set things up, and yet you are responsible. Now you ask, how can those things simultaneously be true? But let me ask you a question before I answer that question. If Scripture suggests that both of those things are simultaneously true, do you have to be able to reconcile them in order to accept it? If Scripture gives clear indication that God is sovereign and man is responsible, do you have to be able to put them together in order to uh, accept the truth of the two independently concluded propositions. I don't think so. And this isn't special pleading for theology. In fact, some of you are science nerds, and you know that in science, particularly as a result of some of the work of Albert Einstein, there is evidence that light travels as a wave and a particle. Seriously, go check it out. Go fact check me. You ask the science, how do you make sense of this? I mean, is it one or the other? And all of the science seems to suggest it's both. How do we make sense of it? I'm not sure. It's been called one of the mysteries. But, but listen, that doesn't mean you don't affirm the clear evidence of both and say, how do we put them together? I'm not sure, but there's clear, independent 
reasons to affirm both. So let me just give you a principle of knowledge. So long as it's not a contradiction, you don't have to be able to resolve a tension between two things if there's clear independent reasons to believe each one. As long as you're not being asked to affirm a contradiction, you don't have to be able to resolve a tension, just a tension between two things, if there's clear independent reasons to believe both of them. And Paul makes clear that God, in his love, and I would say Paul makes clear here, and the Bible, rest of the Bible makes clear, that God in his love chose the Thessalonians, without which they never would have repented and believed the gospel. And he gives an extremely insightful reason for how he has this knowledge. So it's just going to get better here, y'all. It just gets better. He says, we know, brothers, love by God, that he has chosen you. Why is that? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. We know God has chosen you. How could you possibly know something like that? Isn't that what you'd be asking? How could you possibly know that God chose these folks? That's like, do you have, are you privy to the sovereign will of God? What's going on here? There's, there's something, there's an identifying mark. Something special happened. You heard what we had to say, but there was more than that. There was more than that. You see, our preaching came to you. It was accompanied by something else. God, through the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, moved powerfully and brought about personal, heartfelt conviction. That's what happened. That's how I know that you were we we preach the same gospel everywhere. It's not like Thessalonians got a ramped up version and Paul preached the lame version to everyone else. That's not what he's saying. He said we gave you the powerful version, we gave everyone else the anemic version. No. He says we preached the gospel to you but something happened. The spirit showed up and led to conviction. The telltale sign, the effective preaching of the gospel, the powerful work of the spirit bringing about Conviction. So here's the question Paul answers here. And outside of a framework of election, it's going to be very difficult to answer this question. And I'm going to give it to you as a philosophical dilemma. We're going to go through both horns of the dilemma. If the same gospel is preached to two sinners, and one is brought under conviction while the other is not, what accounts for that? Gospel preached to the same two people. One is brought under conviction, repents and believes. The other does not. What foundationally and ultimately accounts for that? Well, you could go two ways. Either what ultimately and foundationally accounts for that is something within that person, or it's something not within that person. It's something outside that person. That's our dilemma that we're going to set up. The foundational, ultimate explanation for why that one person repents rather than does not compared to the other person is either intrinsic to them, something about them, or something outside of them. Let's examine this one. What are two candidates for something that could be inside of someone who that might possibly lead to them repenting and believing while someone else is not? Well, what about the first? What about moral superiority? The reason that this person repented and believed is because they were slightly, they were morals, morally superior. In fact, they were just a little bit more virtuous, and that's what virtuous people do. They, they do the right thing, and it's the right thing to repent and believe. Well, the problem with that explanation is that the Bible makes it very, very clear that there is no one righteous and there is no one who does good. And in fact, as we heard last week from Justin, that without the Spirit, you can't please God. You cannot submit to God's law. 
No one desires godliness. It's not as though we desire godliness and there's something holding us. It's like, no, no one desires godliness apart from some kind of special work. And certainly it could be that someone has more civic virtue. Maybe they've given more money to charity or something like that. But in terms of moral superiority, it won't work as an answer uh, to, to, to uh, the, the question here, because number one, the Bible confirms that we're all sinners, but number two, it gives you a little bit of a legitimate boast for why you're a Christian. You know why I'm a Christian? I was just a cut above. I was just a cut above, morally. The person right here, they didn't believe it's because they just weren't as virtuous. And I'm not saying, I'm not even saying I was super virtuous, but I was more virtuous than this person. Is that really a plausible answer in light of Scripture? It's not. Scripture makes it very clear that no one stands before God virtuous, regardless of to what extent they stand beside uh, in front of society as someone who has done civic good. So that doesn't seem like a very good candidate for something within me. What about rationality? What about rationality? Um, I'm just more rational. I put the pieces together better than the person standing next to me. I had the common sense to see that, hey, I'd rather go to hell or go to heaven. Hmm, okay, not a hard one. And this person just couldn't figure that out. Well, maybe not. I know the evidence is a little bit better. That's why. That's what ultimately explains it. I'm a little bit more rational or I have a little bit more knowledge. But again, the problem with that explanation is that Scripture seems to over and over say that the gospel confounds the wisdom of this age and the wise. Um, has God not chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise? And in fact, it seems like there are plenty of very brilliant Christians, don't get me wrong, but it seems like particularly when he addresses the church at Corinth, he says that on the spectrum of rational thinking power, uh, that, that, uh, that, that the gospel can be for people who aren't the sharpest in the shed, and the people who are the brightest people that you know reject Christianity as a fairy tale. In other words, it doesn't seem that rationality is the key into the door. It seems like it's the, it seems to be the opposite. Paul seems to almost flip it on its head. And so to say that I repented and believed when I heard the gospel because my cognitive faculties were more, they tracked truth better, or I was just more rational person, um, seems to be a, a category error, almost a non sequitur. It's almost like saying I can run fast because I get good sleep. Or, or, or the, the reason I give to charity is because I'm good at math. It's like, okay, how, what does that have to do with it? It doesn't seem that rationality is, is the key to entry here. It seems, again, that this, the gospel confounds just the wise person and people who are particularly smart. There's something else that's missing. So Scripture seems to clearly say the two candidates for elements within us that might explain why we repent and believe, as opposed to the person next to me who does not repent and believe, both of those plausible candidates, and there may be more, neither one of them are any good. So now we've got to go over to the other horn of the dilemma. Okay, you see how the dilemma is set up inside of me, external to me, inside of me. These are these two options. It's not the case that it's these two options, so it's got to be something on this side, outside of me. All right, so what are the candidates there, you ask? It's a good question. What about outside of me? A couple of candidates. First, what about my environment? Well, what accounts for why I believe in the person next to me didn't is because I was raised in this particular environment. I was raised in this particular culture. I was taught these particular things, and this person wasn't. But of course, that does not at all explain the problem with two people who grow up in the same exact home, the same exact culture, and learn all the exact same things, but one repents and believes the gospel and the other doesn't. Okay? That's like a nail-in-the-coffin objection there. 
Okay? If it's supposed to be a particular environment or a particular culture outside of you that ended up causing you to repent and believe, then it should have caused the person who had the exact same environment and culture to repent and believe. But that is manifestly not the case. We all have examples of that. Well, here's another candidate for something outside of me. Maybe it's a special traumatic event or series of events in life. Uh, perhaps I have an existential crisis. I have a personal tragedy. I witness something traumatic, and that causes me. That is kind of the igniting catalyst to help me rethink things. The problem with that is, is twofold. So we all know plenty of people who have experienced those things who have never repented and believed the gospel. And we all know people who have repented and believed the gospel who, by the grace of God, have, have never had those kinds of moments particularly those people who were raised in a Christian home, and their testimony is, I've been a believer about as long as I can tell. That doesn't explain it. It wasn't a crisis of faith. Can't be the environment, not explanatorily powerful. Can't be an acute event, but there's one more thing outside of me that might be a good option, hint, hint. And that is the option that Paul gives here. That what ultimately and foundationally explains why you are a Christian and not your family member or your friend who heard all the same words and grew up in all the same situation, all of it, is because you were chosen by God and the Holy Spirit showed up in power. He gave you new desires. He gave you new desires. He's not overriding your volition, okay? Most people in here probably don't desire liver and onions, But let me tell you something. We don't have volitional control over our desires. Think about this later as you drive home. You can't just decide to change your desires about anything. You can't to change, you you can choose to take, you can choose to eat liver and onions, but you can't choose to desire it. Someone's going to go try, I think. Someone's going to go try, but you can't. But if you can't choose to change your desire, to eat liver and onions, you don't desire that thing. Why think that you could change your orientation from sin to godliness? How do you find yourself desiring to repent and believe? If you desire sin, how do you find yourself with that desire that enables that, that then makes you repent and believe? It changes somehow. No one repented and believed and got, went into the kingdom of God screaming and yelling, No, I don't want to. Don't make me repent. Ah! Now I'm a Christian. It's not how it works. I have a change of heart. I say, this represents what I want to do. This is my will. It's been transformed by the Holy Spirit because I was loved and I was chosen by God and the Holy Spirit showed up. That's, the, that's what Paul knows. So Paul says he knows about the church at Thessalonica. He goes on, and now he's going to talk about something that they knew. He says, You knew what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. Listen, you saw our lives. Paul was long enough there to establish himself in a bit of a trade and make himself as an example as we're about to see. You saw our lives. You embraced our faith, and and you saw us proclaim our faith. And as a result... Look what happens. Look what happens. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in 
Achaia, the power of imitation. Paul and Silas and Timothy imitating God. All of a sudden, the Thessalonians imitate them. Now, all of a sudden, the Thessalonians are an example for the whole region. Okay, And we're going to return to the power of modeling and the application. But I don't want to skip over the two qualifiers that he puts in there. That they received the word with in affliction with joy. You became imitators of us and of the Lord for... You receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the, of the Spirit. Joy in affliction is something that both the Lord Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul experienced. And this is the manner in which the Thessalonians received the word of God. He's pointing that out to them. But this wasn't easy believism. For the Thessalonians, it wasn't easy like it is in Tennessee to hold up your hand and say you're a Christian. It's probably much harder, honestly, to say you're not around here. This wasn't easy believism. This was under persecution, opposition. It wasn't costless Christianity for them. It was a faith worth imitating is what it was. The Thessalonians provide a strong picture of how effective modeling and being an example can be. I said, we're going to return to that. We will. But we learn something else in verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So that we not need not say anything. Now, I read over this when I was studying this passage. I have to confess, I, I missed this on my first and second pass. Because there are two things that go out of from Thessalonica. One, we just heard about. The faith... Their faith in God that has gone forth everywhere. Got that. But notice that their faith in God is distinct from the first thing in the first phrase, the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord sounded forth from them. Yes, their faith is an example and how they were reported to have received Paul and his buddies that was reported, yes, but the word of the Lord went out from Thessalonica. This little fledgling, and this is just incredible to me, this little fledgling church received the word, responded to the word, transformed by the word, and then they sent it out. They sent it out. A church that receives, transforms, and then transmits. And I thought, that's the kind of church that I want to be a part of, don't you? Don't you want to be a, a, a part of a church that receives the word, is transformed by the word, and then proclaims the word? That's what he's saying the Thessalonians did. So it wasn't just that their faith, despite persecution and amidst hardship, was an example. It was that in their faith, they not only were you know, keeping the faith, they were actually proclaiming it. The word of the Lord was going out from them. So Paul says what, what he knows. He says what they know, and then he finishes with what apparently now, because of the word of the Lord going out and because of the example of your faith, what now everybody knows. What now everybody knows in verse 9 and 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul uses three elements here that seem so formulaic that it may be that what Paul is quoting is an old threefold baptismal formula right here that they would have used. 
And it seems, interestingly, and you can check in your own copy of the Scripture as we go through this, that what he mentioned seems to align with the elements in verse 3. Work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. Watch, you'll see. He says, what's being reported? What's being reported about the reception? He says, first, the turning. You turn to God from idols. You turn to God from idols. And that language just kind of passes over us. But this is, remember we talked about how much religious pluralism was in Thessalonica. How many cults they were. This was costly. This was a huge deal. This was the living God triumphing over dead gods. In fact, as I was preparing for the sermon, I came across a, an excerpt from a young Burmese guy who, who, who went down with some friends to evangelize a village inhabited by, by animists. And this is what he recounts. He said that we explained to them the pure, simple gospel and Christ's lordship over the devil and all evil foes, after which they were counseled to confess and forsake their evil deeds and to receive Christ Jesus as their Savior and Lord. With brokenness and tears and guilt, they responded. And then we burned up the charms and amulets. We took a wood-cutting knife and broke down a spirit's house made of bamboo and wood, claiming the lordship of Jesus Christ and singing Christ's victory songs and putting all of ourselves under the blood of the Lamb of God and the rule of the Holy Spirit and claiming God's protection. Because that's what happens when God shows up and meets idols. Similarly, Alan Tippett, who is a sociologist, who as it turns out also happens to be a missionary, uh, returning from giving a, a recount of some of his experiences, he talks about how certain leaders of certain uh, cultures responded when the claims of the gospel collided with their false god. This is him reporting as a sociologist here. He tells us how Pomer II, the Christian chief of Tahiti, baked and ate a sacred turtle without first observing the customary rituals. How Tafahawa, the Ching of Tonga, struck the priestess of his old god with a soft banana club saying, I will strike the devil god with this. And how Malietoa, paramount chief of Samoa, taking no precautions, ate a sacred mullet, which was forbidden food. These were deliberately daring and provocative acts. They were performed in public, with relatives and friends watching in silent apprehension of the god's revenge. They were also symbolic, each being a public rejection of a power which had bound them for all ages." And when no fatal consequences followed, the people were convinced. Conversions took place and the church grew. The southern Polynesians knew, writes Dr. Tippett, that the only real and effective way to proving the power of their new faith was to demonstrate that the old religion has lost its power and fear. And as one missionary commented at that time, idolatry bows and expires at Jesus' name. That's what happened in Thessalonica. It is reported how you turn to God from idols. That turning. But then there is the serving. When I turn to idols, I don't turn to nothing or to apathy. I serve. And you know what servant language implies in the New Testament? It means, it, excuse me, it doesn't mean, it implies a master. You're going to serve someone. Raises the question, who exactly? Oh, a master of some kind. In other words, from the words of one pastor, when I turn to God in faith, I don't let go and let God. I trust God and get going. I have a new heart that desires to serve a new master whose yoke is easy and his burdens light. 
a turn to God and a live under the lordship and the mastery, the mastership, even though that's not a word, of Christ. The idea that I could somehow turn to God to save me from my sin, but I don't have to embrace Him as Lord or anything like that is an idea totally foreign to the New Testament. That's not a thing. There's no get-out-of-hell-free card and then just live how I want. That would indicate that someone had not truly turned. They don't even understand what that means. This is continuous. This is ongoing. This is serving. And then finally, waiting. This washed over me in a new way this week, brothers and sisters, I have to say. Paul places waiting here into the mix as a primary category of life before God. A primary category, as important, as prominent, apparently, as turning, which is repenting, serving the Lord. And this isn't something impersonal either, like the church has to wait for the return of Christ as a theological statement. No, this is something that is actu- that actually characterizes the Christian life, or is supposed to. Waiting. Like waiting is a part of it. And not just a... Matter of fact, theological way, like Jesus hasn't returned, therefore we're waiting. Like, no, 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 that's not what it's saying. It's like being a someone who waits, waiting well is part of the Christian life. Waiting. What's your theology of waiting? I'm going to tease that out in the application. It doesn't seem to me, in other words, and this is kind of the insight, that you can wait passively. Let me give you an example. I was waiting for some books to arrive from Amazon. I knew they were going to arrive towards the end of the day, and I was looking forward to their arrival at the end of the day. Uh, But I also had a very busy day. Had a very busy day. And if I'm honest, I totally forgot. I was really truly excited about it, but I was so busy, I just forgot about it. Forgot about it. I went out about my day. I was going out and about, doing all the rest of it. And then, in fact, I came, I pulled back in my drive, was, oh, there they are. Books. Let me ask you a question. Did I wait all day for those? I didn't wait. I existed until they came. I busied myself until they arrived. But was I waiting? It was totally out of sight, out of mind. Right? I want to suggest that waiting is living with a particular kind of disposition. We're going to come back to that in the application. What would it mean to wait well? How do you wait well? But first, Paul concludes by telling us something about why anyone would wait on a risen Savior. And we see this. This is why we, why we chose 2 Thessalonians 1 as one of our texts. Jesus was not just from heaven, and he was not just raised from the dead. It came in a context that Jesus will deliver us from the wrath to come. There is wrath coming, brothers and sisters. It is coming like an unstoppable tidal wave, and everyone will stand before it, except those people who are united to Christ will not taste a single drop, because it is finished for him. It is finished for the brother, the sister, who is united to Christ. They are yoked to the deliverer who has already tasted God's wrath for them. God has already tasted wrath for you. So in repenting and believing and turning from sin, you are covered with the righteousness of Christ. Your acceptance before God isn't based on the fact that you are a good person because you aren't in and of yourself. But you are credited with something else and that is how you are delivered. That is your only hope. That is your only hope. Reforming your life will not cut it. Christ is the one who delivers from the wrath 
to come. It's the Christian hope. It was the Thessalonians' hope, brothers and sisters. And having received the gospel with conviction despite hardship, the faith of the Thessalonians became a widespread example to other believers. I want to draw out two elements of this passage among a handful that could be expanded upon. And the first is this ministry of modeling. This incredible ministry of modeling. Ultimately, we are to model God, the character of Christ. It's behind even the the little bracelets that were popular when I was in elementary school. I don't know. Maybe they still are. I don't know what's popular these days. But the WWJD bracelet, behind that was the idea that we are supposed to ask questions like, how would a godly character respond here? And yet in doing so, we accomplish something else insofar as we are imitating Christ well. That is, and we see it here, we become second-level examples for other people to watch. And the powering that modeling Christ well for others has, brothers and sisters, cannot be overstated. Because there is so much in the Christian life that is caught rather than taught, to use the old beaten-to-death phrase from the leadership and discipleship literature. There's a reason it's beaten to death. There is so much that is caught rather than taught. And this should make us excited in a few ways, but cautious in a few others. First is, if this is true, if this ministry of modeling is really powerful, then that means that, that I can minister to others and help transform other people without being a teacher at all or without knowing a lot of theology or without uh, having a bunch of organizational skill or without having X, Y, and Z. Can I be an example to somebody? Can my faith, can my life be an example to someone? Some there, Brothers and sisters, there are some folks who just need somebody to watch Maybe they grew up without a dad. They grew up without a mom, especially those cases. They, maybe it's a younger couple. They just need some folks to watch. Some people just need an example. Hey, I understand the theology. I got it. I've read the books. I understand. But I just need to see what this looks like in like flesh and blood. Can, I just, can you please just give me an example? All, I have to, all you have to let me do is just exist around you in real life. The, powers, the power of an example is incredible. The second thing this should occur to us in is I can, I, if this is true, then I can do effective ministry in the run of life as opposed to just church events. If I, can, if I can minister to others by modeling and by being an example, I can do that anywhere. I can do that everywhere. I can bring along, I can bring people to uh, one of my kids' ball games. We can go grocery shopping together. If just being around and just modeling and being an example is that powerful, then you don't have to carve out necessarily, and you certainly probably will in addition to that, but you don't have to have carved out churchy work time, ministry time, to be doing ministry and affecting people's lives. Both of those things are exciting. Here's two reasons to be cautious, though. We have to ask ourselves a question, what are the people around us catching from us? What do your friends catch from you? What do they see imitated? Hmm? What about your spouse? What do they see? Or maybe most impressionably, what about your children? What do your children catch from you? 
Do they catch a spirit of gentleness? Do they catch a spirit of grace? A spirit of love? I was uh, attempting to hit golf balls the other day, and over there at these batting cages, there was a father with a, with a son who was struggling to hit the batting, struggling to hit the pitch or whatever in the, in the batting cage. And um, this dad was just so furious with this little boy. He must have been seven or eight years old. Come on! You gotta hit, you're not going to make this team! Kid stepped out of the batting cage, he ripped his helmet off, threw those bats in his bag, and let's go home. And I just remember thinking, what does that kid learn from that? What does that kid learn? Is he learning how to treat other people? Maybe he's learning about himself. That I can never live up to dad's expectations. I'm a constant failure, constant disappointment. Or maybe dad's teaching me, this is how you deal with people who don't uh, meet, your, uh, meet your expectations. What are people catching from you? Because make no mistake about it. They are catching something. This modeling thing is too powerful to have no effects. Okay? It's like carrying around radiation. Like you can try to like do this, and guess what? It'll still like radiate out. Okay? It will have effects. The only question is, what are people catching from you? Especially your children, they will catch more from you than what you teach them with your words. And especially if what they catch from you is in direct contradiction to your words. You know you should be gracious, right? If you feel the oddness and tension in a statement like that, you're getting the point. Second thing we should caution about, who have I chosen to look to as models on a regular basis? Because they will wear off on you and it will happen in ways you don't even realize. Even the, the, the language that you use will change. Maybe the phrases that you use will change. Your dispositions towards certain things will change. Perhaps even down to what you wear might change. You are slowly affected by it and you're affected by it perhaps in ways that you don't even know. And so because you're not going to be able to avoid the effects of example and modeling altogether... It would be wise for us to very carefully consider who are we looking to as examples. You'll probably have more ability to resist the wearing off of modeling than a child, but you will not avoid its effects entirely. You will not avoid its effects entirely. Some sobering considerations about the power of example and modeling that should both excite us, but also give us caution. I want to conclude with talking about waiting well. Waiting well. How do I wait for God instead of busying myself until I die or Jesus returns? I tried to give an example with the Amazon books that while there's some categorical sense in which I waited for them to get there, I really didn't do anything personally. I just kind of existed and busied myself and then something happened. I don't take that to be biblical waiting. I don't take that to be what Paul is saying was reported so widely. Y'all turned from God, you started serving, and then you existed. Until something happens. So the question is, how do you wait well? This is what I had to think about. I was going through this text just this week. It's like, I don't know. I've never thought about that for one second. What's my practical theology of waiting? 
So here's what I hope to give, a practical theology of waiting. And I'm going to analyze it. I'm going to say that waiting actually breaks down functionally into these three things, at least these three things, maybe more. First is that I live hopefully. If I don't have hope, I won't wait. Think about the folly of waiting on a package that has no hope of getting there that day. Am I right? That doesn't even make sense. If I don't have hope, I will not wait. Part of waiting is keeping hope, clinging to hope, and being hopeful. And have the steadfastness that comes from it. Look, remember back up in verse 3, to have the steadfastness that comes from hope. I've got to be anchored in the promises of God and excited about the prospects. Because guess what? I don't, I don't wait around for things and hope for things that I'm not excited about either. You know, when my wife has a package that's coming Amazon at 5 o'clock, I don't care. I'm not waiting for it. I'm not hoping for it. So if I'm apathetic towards the promises of God, I won't be a good waiter. My disposition, I have to anchored in the promises of God and excited about the prospects of God. When you blend those together, you get hope. You get Christian hope. There's hope. It's always future-oriented. There is hope. Waiting, first part of waiting, hoping. Second, I live purposefully. My life has a, the Greek word telos, telos. It has an end. The way I live, it has some kind of discernible goal. Uh, in fact, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, what is it, October, I guess last month. Whew, is it really? Anyways, um, we, uh, my, my daughter had a, a birthday party, Callie. She turned three years old, and it was, a, uh, it was an afternoon birthday party. I can't remember whether it was 11 or 12 o'clock. And so uh, we were uh, feverishly trying to get things ready for the party uh, from the time we woke up. And there was a lot of purposeful activity going on as we waited for the party to start. But here's the thing. Anyone who walked in at that time would have no questions on what we were waiting for. Right? No one would walk in and be like, oh, is, is, is I got a college graduate? Is that what they're going to stand under the pink castle there? Oh, that's sweet. The, the Princess Elsa thing, that's for, that's, for, that's for Steve, right? No. No one would have been confused about what we were waiting on because of how purposeful the time was spent. It was organized purposefully. No, we weren't sitting there swapping stories. We were getting it done. We were getting to work. And my life should take a particular shape as I grow in godliness, as I live within God's framework and accomplish the things that are a priority for God far before they're a priority for me. My desires, my priorities, they're rightly ordered, and my purposes and my, my, my goals, little g goals in life, I don't mean goals like to glorify God, Great. I mean the little g goals of your life, the way it is structured toward a final purpose of glorifying God is rightly ordered. So it's not just empty. It's not just doing Christian activity. It's not just busyness. It's rightfully ordered. So here's a question to help soak this one in. If someone looked in on your life, is it ordered purposefully enough so they would have any idea what you're waiting for? Is your life purposeful enough that if someone were to look in, they would have any idea what you're waiting for? Purposefully. Finally, faithfully. Waiting on the bridegroom, as we saw at the end of 2 Corinthians, involves faithfulness to the bridegroom. Imagine a woman whose husband was deployed overseas in the military for an extended time. And over that time, her commitment, her feelings of commitment um, began to wane. She didn't have an outlet to express some of her 
desires. And unfortunately, she finds some other men to fulfill those desires with. Her husband comes back on the plane. She meets him on the tarmac and says, Honey, I've been waiting for you. Wouldn't that be a little hard to take seriously? Would in one sense, right? That woman wasn't waiting for her husband. Maybe she was waiting for someone to come back in the abstract, but she wasn't waiting for a person, that's for sure, because she gave herself to another one. She was passing time in a way that she thought was necessary for her happiness. She wasn't waiting. Waiting requires faithfulness. It requires staying true to the mission. It requires holiness. It requires staying faithful to the bridegroom. So what does it mean to wait on the Lord? If you ask me, this is what I would say. Instead of busying myself or merely existing till I die or Jesus returns, what it means to wait biblically is to live hopefully, purposefully, and faithfully in light of the return of Christ. To live hopefully, purposefully, and faithfully in light of the return of Christ. And my prayer is that we here at RBC Nashville would be great waiters. That we would improve our appetite for and our ability to wait well if waiting is this important. Is this important? And I'm convinced that it is. Let's pray together. God, we want to be transformed by your spirit. Lord, we pray that even as we read that you would work powerfully with the convicting work of the Spirit to transform hearts even now, that you would help us ask questions about practical problems like who, who we could be an example to, what examples we are looking at, and Lord, did you affect in us and a desire and a disposition to wait well on the coming of Christ. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.